0: Okay, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. Per the expressed request of this fine assembly, I'm repeating some things, doing the opposite of what distillation is as a teaching technique. Distillation is concentration. I'm fanning out, which is repetition and expansion of things taught before. I think this is going to help you retain the necessary... Doctrine to which we have been committed, and in Galatia or Romans six seventeen we have commit been committed to a certain form of teaching. You might call it grace. Couple of moments of silent prayer. Rob's here, so we can start. I've been waiting for that. Okay, let's pray. Father, tonight we pray that you'll fan the flames of the fire of the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that we might be revived according to your word, reinvigorated according to your spirit, empowered to understand the things that we're about to study. And we thank you for the Spirit's direction, the Spirit of truth who indeed has promised is leading us into all truth, that being all the truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this opportunity. Grant us all alertness now, attentiveness, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin tonight with a couple of echoes that are sometimes unheard by commentaries when you're looking at certain passages and I find that that's a great interpretive tool and it takes I think takes quite a bit of study to get used to and to get our ears attuned to echoes from the Old Testament. There's one that you might want to note from Hosea the first one and that's going to go to Galatians 3:26, and then there's another one that we're going to see in verse 28 that comes from Joel 2 and 29. And there's a little variance when you get to the septuagint translation, which is what's alluded to here. And once you hear these echoes, it becomes determinative for the interpretation of certain passages. In other words, the passage can't really be seen in its true light unless the echo that is the biblical author is thinking of is heard. And that really directs the interpretation in a way that I think is always helpful. Galatians 3.26, this backs us up and gets us going again in a passage. We've been kind of hunkering down on this chapter in Galatians in depicting the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Sundays, I'm hunkering down on the divine missions and fanning out on that subject We'll get into a little exegesis on these Wednesday and Thursday meetings. Galatians 3:26, for you are all, and here's the echo, and therefore I would put this in at least quotes: the sons of God. Now, this, I believe, is an echo from Hosea chapter 2 and verse 1, or 110, not to be confused, but in some English translations it's in 110 where God predicts that he is going to call Israel whom he did not call his people. He was going to call them the sons of the living God. In other words, that is an identifier of eschatological Israel. Paul is telling a group of graced pagans that they are the sons of God or part of eschatological Israel, not by any Merit on their own, not by circumcision, not by following kosher table laws, not by fulfilling certain days and new moons and Sabbaths, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I like to call the Galatians, as I like to call myself, a graced pagan, a pagan graced by having put on Jesus Christ through a baptism. That was not initiated by me, but by the Lord. You are all the sons of God. Now, because we hear an echo here, it's interpretive. For you are all the sons of God, and please notice this translation, for I don't think it's in most English translations, through the fidelity that is in Christ Jesus or Messiah Jesus through the fidelity that is in Messiah Jesus. How are we graced pagans and graced Jews also? How are we the sons of God? How are we those who have received the adoption as God's sons? It is through the fidelity of Messiah Jesus. And it's, the word is dia, the phrase here is dia tes pistios. This is a second extremely important interpretive tool, is exegesis of the Greek, without which I would be lost completely as a preacher. I would have been out of the game a long time ago. So I don't trust what a verse says until I see it in the Greek, and even then, we require the Holy Spirit. Dia teis pistios, this little phrase is basically equivalent to ek pistios in Romans. And this is extremely important for the Romans interpretation. Ek pistios. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed ek pistios. And then Ice or eis piston, Dietes pistios is equivalent to this ek pistios, and the ek pistios means that the righteousness of God is revealed from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And these two are found to be equal in Romans 3.30, because there, Paul says, because God is one and the same, he says, I am that I am. God is one and the same who delivers the circumcision ek pistios. He delivers Jews or saves, transforms, justifies, and causes them to participate in Messiah ek pistios. That's through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, as we have seen many times in looking at Romans, and we'll see again. Then he says... The same God delivers the, the uncircumcision. These are the graced pagans. Dia pistios. Is that two different things or is it the same thing? God doesn't say, well, to you Jews, I'm going to save you from the faithfulness of Christ or out from or from that faithfulness as a source. But it's going to be entirely different with you pagans. I'm going to save you through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. No, they're equivalent. The same God saves Jews circumcision through the faithfulness of Christ. ekpistios, from the source of Christ's faithfulness. And he delivers the pagans through the faithfulness, the same faithfulness of Messiah. And so I would translate this, not through faith in Christ Jesus. And I used to translate it through, through faith that Christ, Jesus is the Christ but the faithfulness or the fidelity that is in Messiah Jesus Paul is telling this to a church that he had already told this to but they were dissuaded misled and told that they could only be of the community of Israel through physical circumcision and ritual circumcision for the males through following the kosher table the laws, the dietary laws of Torah through following the holidays or holy days, the schedule of holy days of the Jewish calendar, and ultimately fulfilling all the law. You are all the sons of God through the fidelity that is in Messiah Jesus. That it's in Messiah Jesus means that it's the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah himself, which is now participated in by the Galatian pagans, the graced pagans, through the faith that the gospel ignited in them. And then he says in verse 27, for you see, that's the explanatory use of the preposition gar, for you see, all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Now, this is repetition, but baptism here is the great explanation. It's the great instruction. It does not say all who have been baptized in water, but all who were baptized into Christ. That's an action that can only be accomplished by a divine person, and that's the Holy Spirit, who in his divine mission baptizes people into Christ, into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12:13 says that. That again is the spirit's work. This is belongs to pneumatology. 1 Corinthians 12:13, you can compare that to Ephesians 4:4 4, 4, and following where Paul speaks of one baptism and one spirit implying that the baptism is one of the spirit. So it's not a matter of baptized in the name of Jesus or baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, sprinkled, squirted, dunked, whatever. It's not a battle between all those modes of baptism. The one baptism is the baptism accomplished by a divine person by which human persons are identified with and introduced into forever permanent union with Jesus Christ to be the body of Christ. And so, it is part of divine mission two, which is an extension of divine mission one. It is a vital part of the second divine mission, that of the Spirit, and that is baptism by the Spirit into one body, Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether graced Jew or graced pagan. You've been graced because you've been called the sons of God and received adoption as sons, Through the fidelity that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is going somewhere, and I'm going to be very careful to approach it, and I'll begin to approach it tomorrow night, Lord willing. So, water baptism illustrates this in visible terms. The baptized are immersed in water to show that they were identified with Christ's history in his downward trajectory. And they are arise from the water to show that they have been identified with Jesus Christ in his upward trajectory. And they have been therefore granted the victory. God has granted us the victory through Jesus Christ. The victory that we have seen. And I think Pastor Stewart gave me this idea when we looked at the uh, downward trajectory that we are identified with in Christ. That is with his death, burial, and then his upward trajectory. And there's the V, the victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We have been identified with Jesus Christ's crucifixion, with his resurrection, and with his enthronement. And so water baptism is a great illustrator. Water baptism is not a saving event. The saving event includes a baptism into Christ by God, the Holy Spirit's a divine action by a divine person. Everything is a divine action that includes your spiritual life. Don't be misled into thinking that Christian life is character development. Christian life has nothing to do with character development whatsoever. Character development is often though there is a place for it in upbringing of children, character development is not a part of the Christian life. Character development, when it ignores the power of divine action, simply becomes a reconfiguring of the Adamic ontology and it makes a person a self-made person. The Christian life is not about character development. It is about a divinely orchestrated and divinely accomplished transformation which occurs only through an individual's freedom from the power of sin, which again can only be affected by God, God the Holy Spirit, through the action of God in Christ in divine mission one. Divine missions are the place where the spirit is putting his accent now in our studies, generally speaking. So once again, water baptism illustrates this invisible reality, invisible terms. And so they have been, the baptizans, as they're called, have been, in the words of Doug Campbell, grafted on to the twofold trajectory of Jesus, the downward and the upward trajectory. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we are in him. After the baptism... The baptized then, in according to the early church ritual, put on clean clothes, new clean clothes, and this symbolizes two things, and this is repetition. One, they have put on Christ, two, they have put on the armor of God for combat in the eschatological apocalyptic war, in which the flesh, which is a suprahuman player a superhuman warrior in this battle wars against the spirit lusts against the spirit desires or aspires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh the apocalyptic battle is the spirit and the flesh Galatians 517 and again Peter is very helpful because he puts it more explicitly in military terms saying that the impulsive desires of the flesh make war. And he uses the word very clearly here where we get our word strategy from the Greek text. It's they make war is the word S-T-R-A-T-E-U-O-N-T-A-I. Stratuontai, S-T-R, see this, strat, it's the beginning of strategy or strategic, it has, it means to make war. Peter says, in more explicit military terms, the impulsive desire of the flesh makes war against the soul. In verse Peter 2, 1 to 2, the soul, and this is important, the soul cannot successfully combat these desires. The soul, that's the unaided human subject, cannot successfully combat the desire of the flesh. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. We'll explain what that means down the road when we get to the Christian spiritual life again. And again, the soul which cannot combat these desires only sublimates at best. And this again, I want to repeat this. This is, I think I did this a couple of weeks ago to sublimate is to divert the energy associated with an unacceptable impulse or a socially unacceptable drive into an acceptable activity. A classic example of this, is someone who is an addict to a substance who becomes a workaholic. The workaholic is more acceptable. And that's just sublimation. It diverts the energy from one drive to another. And it's really what I would call a reconfiguration of the Adamic ontology. It's still perishing. It's still being under the power of sin. But it's making Adam or the life in Adam look a little better. That's what a lot of Christianity is today. And I put Christianity in quotes, of course. Only the spirit can successfully combat and keep overpowering the impulsive power of the flesh. This is an essential principle of pneumatology. It is an essential principle of the Christian life. It is an essential principle of the eschatological apocalyptic combat where divine power and divine action are requisite, absolutely necessary. Where Paul urges, in Romans thirteen fourteen in a climactic passage, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with reference to its desires. He is saying, in effect, be what you have become through baptism into Christ. And so in this man's army, the army of the man Christ Jesus, it is not be all you can be, which means... Development of character in the reconfiguration of Adam. Be the best Adam you can be. It's put off the old man altogether and be what you have become in Christ and by the spirit. And that can only occur as there is freedom from the power of sin. Paul's homardiology or study of sin is very important because... Probably ninety percent of the times he uses the word Hamatia, it is in the singular. He's not dealing with individual sins that people feel all guilty about and then confess and then find forgiveness and then move on, and they they get into the atomization, A T O M, of every little sin. And Paul doesn't deal with that stuff. He says a couple times, Ephesians one seven, Colossians one fourteen that you have received the forgiveness of sins, which again is a way of describing them as the eschatological Israel for the redeemer comes from Zion and he removes ungodliness from Jacob and he forgives sins. He forgives the sins of Israel. So that's just an identifier with Israel. Paul is not concerned so much with us running around and being and taking account of our day so that we can remember all the little sins we committed, which we aren't even capable of doing anyways. The whole idea to Paul is a singular hamartia, is to be free from the power of sin, which is a suprahuman power, and he views sin not just as a moral flaw or moral failure, but as a, an evil part of this evil age. It's one of the stoichia, one of the elements, one of the constituents of the present evil age. Now the whole doctrine of rebound as we've called it has to be rethought restructured reworked because the wrong way to view it makes Christians sin conscious instead of Christ conscious and it does not free them. People are deceived into thinking if they name a sin they find it they go looking for a sin they committed today. And they say, oh, I'm going to acknowledge that because if I admit that, then I'll have the filling of the spirit back. No, you don't. That's not the way it works. I know that might sting, but there's an ointment for the sting. Not going to give it to you tonight, though. Just let it hurt for a while. Now, Galatians 3.28. Here's the second echo. This one's from Joel. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 and 29 maddeningly enough is Joel 3 1 to 2 in the Septuagint translation so but if you turn to if you want to turn there you can if not otherwise I think there's an echo that I have not seen heard by any commentaries and I'm sure some have probably found it where it says there is no Jew or Greek or really what you have here is an antinomy or a an element of hostility, Jew versus Greek. In fact, I think it could be properly translated, there is no, in Christ, there is no Jew versus Greek. Hostility is taken out of that whole picture. There is no slave nor free, which is slave versus freeman. There is no male or female. That means there is no gender war going on. There is no male versus female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, why do I see an echo here? From Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29, the Septuagint again, the Greek translation, the Alexandrian Greek translation, Translation of that passage is Joel three one to two, and it reads like this from the Greek text. It says, "And after that, it will come about that I will pour out." This time we have a a word that's going to appear in the bulletin someday soon. ek-ke-o ek-ke-o and that word is used twice in Joel. One in 2.28, one in 2.29, or three, one in two. Ekeo means to pour out, to pour out generously or copiously, like Paul says in Titus three 3.5, it is not by righteous works which you have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the bath of regeneration, which he, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he generously poured out on us, Through Jesus Christ, by grace, you are justified. So in Titus 3, 5 to 7, Paul didn't use the opportunity to say anything about faith, your faith, only that you're saved according to mercy, justified by grace, and through an action of the Holy Spirit being poured out. So the pouring out of the Spirit in Titus 3, 5, and 7, which is called plenteous or copious or generous, it's called generous because it's going to be poured out on all flesh. This indicates to me uh, the universality of Divine Mission 2, which we've been, we've been studying on Sunday mornings. And you have less excuse about getting those MP3s because now, thanks to Jim's industriousness, we have the double-speed stuff coming to you. You can hear a message normally 60 minutes long and 30 minutes because... Jim has sucked all the oxygen out between all the words. So they're all just stacked right up next to each other. And so we have the times two option. So if I say it's probably profitable for you to get a Sunday message from two Sundays ago, you can do that if you want. You don't have to. This isn't a legalistic church. I'm not demanding anything. But if you want to benefit from it, you can listen to it in half the time now. So after that, it will come about that I will pour out eke'o, same verb used by Paul in Romans 5 5, incidentally, when the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So if the love of God is poured out into our hearts, eke'o, by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, who does that make us? Who, do, what, who are we? Well, God promised Israel that he would put his spirit in Israel. Israel and cause them to walk according to his ordinances and in the great Shema listen up Israel you will love the Lord your God if you're going to define what Israel is in reality Israel is the lover of God when the Holy Spirit is given to us we are eschatological Israel along with other Jews and Gentiles males and females slaves are free doesn't matter what social strata or a social stratus. We are or status. We have, have. It's all. We're all one in Christ. Because of the universality of the Holy Spirit. Now notice this. After that. It will come about. That I will pour out. My spirit. On all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your elders will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. And upon male slaves and female slaves. Notice what he says here. Here's the echo. And upon male slaves and female slaves. What do we have here? The, why do I hear an echo from this to Galatians 3.28? There is no slave versus free. There is no male versus female. Because I will pour out my spirit on male and female slaves, as well as all free people, the pouring out of the spirit is always a salvific event. it is always a salvific event and if God promises to pour out his spirit on all flesh, then that salvific event applies to all flesh and This brings up a whole idea of the the, the idea if I was in a theology class now, I would start to shoot down a theory called salvation history which is a way of viewing the scriptures and i would shoot down salvation history by saying that it is not the way to interpret the scriptures but the way to interpret the scriptures is to see that god's view of humanity is a view of humanity as a single monolith in all of its generations all together at once in one single monolithic view God views all of humanity. The horizon that Jesus Christ had from Calvary's cross was the entirety of humanity, all flesh. And in John seventeen two, he says, The Father has, has given me authority over all flesh in order to give eternal life to as many as I want to. Now, if he has all flesh under his authority... He's going to give eternal life to his favorites and damn the rest. No, I don't think so. What he sees before him is the entirety of the human race, including the most evil offenders and evildoers in the human race, because there is no crime that compares to the murder of God's son. So when he looks out over the worst offenders His horizon as a divine person on Calvary's cross is all of humankind. So when he says, Father, forgive them, who do you think he's talking to? And who do you think he's talking about? They don't even know what they're doing. And that goes back to Jonah. When God says, Jonah, what are you upset about? You're upset that I saved all these people in Nineveh, aren't you? People that don't know their left from the right people that could no more understand that they're a sinner and need salvation than a frog on a lily pad could understand it. So I had to initiate their salvation. What are you upset about? That I saved through my generosity and my love, my justice? Jonah had a little touch of the cancer that destroys more spiritual lives than any other. It's called ressentiment. Bitterness. At the grace shown. To others. You clearly don't deserve it. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters will prophesy and your elders will dream dreams and your young men will see visions and upon male slaves and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit what God is trying to say here or what he is saying is the ministry and mission of the Holy Spirit is universal at Keo use both Joel 3 1 and 3 2 is the same verb used in Romans five five? The Spirit who was given to us has poured out. Ekeo, perfect passive indicative of the verb ekeo. The love of God in our hearts, the love poured out in our hearts makes us lovers of God. Lovers of God, by definition, means Israel. For as the Shema says, which Paul refers to many times in the scriptures, not least in 1 Corinthians 8 6, the Shema Israel, listen up, Israel, you will love the Lord your God. And so I believe an echo of this passage in Joel is heard in Galatians three twenty eight, in which we learn that in Christ there is no male versus female. There is no slave versus free person. There is no restriction upon those whom God pours out his spirit salvifically. Included in the universal gift of the spirit then are both male and female slaves. And the gift of the spirit means freedom for all in 2 Corinthians 3.17. This goes to the universalistic character of the second divine mission. And so this seems to be an unheard echo. All of of a sudden, you should be able to see that Galatians 3.26, its interpretation is determined by an echo. You are all the sons of God. In that time, which is the eschatological season, which is now, you will be called the sons of the living God. And then Paul says to a group of graced out pagans, Celts, Celtic peoples in northern Anatolia, you are the sons of God, all of you. Through the faithfulness that is in Christ Jesus, it's a faithfulness that continues in the body of Christ Jesus, as we will see. So an echo often not mentioned in commentaries on Galatians 3:26 is matched by an echo unheard in many commentaries in 3:28 Joel 2:28 and 29 by which the graced pagans at Galatia are identified as part of eschatological Israel and this reaches a climax in Galatians 6:16 mercy and peace be upon those who walk according to this transcendent precept, even to the Israel of God. That's the very discovery, that's the very insight that caused me to break free from the shackles of dispensationalism and fundamentalism. That verse alone, right there, that little phrase caused me to break the bonds and the restrictive, smothering bonds of dispensationalism and fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism. So, this all goes to the universal character of the second divine mission. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The graced pagans in Galatia This must have really shocked the teachers that were seated in the audience when this epistle was being read again, when he said, you are all sons of God through the fidelity that's in Messiah Jesus. That was like, you might as well have just gone up and slapped every one of those teachers in the face both ways. So you probably heard a lot of this in the audience. <laughs> so, if the echo from Joel 2.28 to 29, or the Septuagint 3, one and 2 is heard, then the antinomy between male and female is done away simply because the gift of the Holy Spirit is universal. This does away with a whole lot of social antipathies whole lot of racial divisiveness this does away with a whole lot of what you see today is the hostility and divisiveness and bitter hatred that spews from comedians even comedians used to be funny now they're bitterly hateful I can't watch it any I can't watch nighttime hosts who are bitter and hateful and they spew this stuff and it's the kind of thing that leads to the violence that we saw today on the, against a group of politicians and others. It leads to that. It's vitriol. The cross of Christ does away with all that stuff. And so in verse 29, if you are Christ's, that's if you belong to Christ, we could say, and if you belong to Christ, and you do, then you are Abraham's seed. But we already heard that their seed is singular, and it is here again. We already heard in Galatians 3.16 that the seed is singular, and it's Christ. So, is he blaspheming to say, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed? No, because you are corporately what Christ is corporeally and individually. So, and if you are Christ, Christ's, C-H-R-I-S-T apostrophe S, if you compare that with 1 Corinthians 3.23, I love what Paul said, and Romans 1.6, he said to the Corinthians, you're trying to claim certain teachers. You're trying to say that you are of Paul, and you are of Peter, and someone else is of Apollos. And some of you are even saying, we're of Christ. In the wrong way, in a divisive way. And he said, don't you know that everything belongs to you? Everything is yours, whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos. Or whether life or death or the present or the future. Everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 3.23, it's one of the greatest. You should put that on your fridge sometime. I should. Because I would go to the fridge and say, what I really need is a frozen chocolate bar from the freezer. And then I would look up and say, everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And I'd say, well, I'm going to save the candy bar for Saturday. Then I'll have five. You are Christ's. If you are Christ, and you are fulfilled condition, then you are Abraham's seed. The seed, again, is singular. So belonging to Christ and being in Christ, you, plural, are singular, Abraham's seed. You, plural, are Abraham. He's saying, basically, you, plural, are Christ corporate. Let me show you how we can do this by the Corinthian connection. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 again. This, is, this keeps coming up, this connection. So let me read the verse first. And if you are Christ, or if you belong to Christ, and you do, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs, the plural is used of kleronomi, no according to promise. Heirs, according promise. To promise, not according to the legal part of Torah, not according to circumcision, but according to an unconditional promise with universal horizons. In you, that is in your seed, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That's the entirety of humanity as a single monolithic entity that destroys the whole theory of salvation history, which is supposed to be the new perspective on Paul. The old perspective is justification by faith. The new perspective is salvation history. The real perspective should be something different, goes beyond. And that's where the Holy Spirit's been propelling us. So we have singular seed plural persons you plural are one seed you plural how do you explain this how about first Corinthians twelve 12? let's let scripture explain scripture for just as the human body is one entity a single monolithic whole we could say W H O L E just as the human body is one entity while having many parts And all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, that's a divine action, we were all, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free persons, baptized into one body. And we were all, without exception, made to drink this goes back to drinking in 1 Corinthians 10.4 from the rock. The water that came from the rock is the spirit that came was sent by Jesus Christ. They drank from the water from the rock and the rock was Christ. We were made to drink. Numbers 20 and verse 8 compared with John 7.38 and 39 when Jesus cried out and said as many as come to me I will Rivers of water will come out from his innermost being. That's not the one that comes to Christ, that's the Christ. Out from his innermost being comes the Spirit of Christ, which is the water that we were made to drink. The Holy Spirit performed the action of placing us in Christ. The Holy Spirit performed the action of placing Christ in us. The Holy Spirit made us drink. You were all made to drink of one spirit again that goes back to 1 Corinthians 10 he's developing this thought all the way back from 10:4 the rock was Christ the water from the innermost being of messiah that being the spirit according to John 7:38 and 39 which was not given until Christ was glorified until the upward trajectory so here's a continuity of what we would call Christology and Ecclesiology. This brings into focus the individual and the communal or the corporeal and the corporate identity of both the Son of Man in Daniel 7. This takes us all, this, you see, entire reams and volumes of doctrine start to flood my mind at this point. Because in Daniel 7.13, we have this Son of Man figure. And the Son of Man figure, is an, he's sort of an enigma to everybody. He's kind of a puzzling figure because he is human. He is very much human. He is, in fact, the Son of Man. One like a Son of Man means that he is the essentially and truly human being. But he's also a divine person. And he comes up to the Ancient of Days who gives him a kingdom that's everlasting as opposed to the kingdoms that falter and are destroyed in the bestial kingdoms in Daniel 7. But we see in this figure both a corporate figure, because in him there are countless numbers of human beings, and we also see him as an individual figure. The same thing happens in Isaiah 40 to 55, 2nd Isaiah. We see one called the servant of Yahweh. He's an enigmatic figure because he is human, but he's also strangely divine and equal to Yahweh. But he is also an individual who is also a corporate, collective. And if you really follow that through, you find out that he is collective of the whole human race. When Christ became incarnate, he embodied all of humanity. And so all of humanity shares his history and his destiny. That's I know that's a little shocking. These are all doctrinal strands that need to be developed. Now, if it's according to promise, says three twenty nine, kat evangelion, then it is consistent with God's unconditional pledge. When he preached the gospel in advance to Abraham, he said in you and later in your seed, more importantly, all the nations will be blessed. He reiterates it in verse 29. If it's according to promise, then it's consistent with God's unconditional pledge and not according to a conditional covenant or a contract. Again, the gospel consists of an unconditional promise and rests on the unilateral covenant fidelity of God in Christ and of Christ in God. The gospel consists of an unconditional promise. The gospel elicits, ignites, kindles, however you want to say it, faith. Not so that faith will be the means for justification but so that the faithfulness of Christ will be recognized and acknowledged as the means of justification and the source of it. And justification is the justifying life that eventually comes to all, according to Romans 5.18, and has come already to all who believe, because their faith was ignited by the gospel. It's a matter of, you say, when do people Come into Christ. When do, they, when do they know this? When they awake from sleep. And Christ shines on them. In Ephesians five eight fourteen, Awake from sleep. And rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. That's salvation. Christ shining on you. First you waking up. Paul woke up. Saul woke up. On the outskirts of Damascus, Christ shone on him. He was saved by mercy, according to mercy like you and I were. He was justified by the pure, unadulterated, unconditional grace of God through the faithfulness of the Messiah that he saw full-fledged face-to-face. And so he turned around and he said, awake, you sleeper. The whole world now that hasn't believed in Christ simply needs to wake up and Christ will shine upon them. And the waking up action is a divine action. And it happens sometimes during the preaching of the gospel, believe it or not. Now, I'm going to just start some tracks to run on for tomorrow night, but here's, let's go to Galatians 4, one. Now, what I'm saying... Better call Paul. Paul, what are you saying? Well, Galatians four one. Now, what I'm saying, he's continuing the analogy from common human affairs that he set in motion all the way back in 3.15. What I'm saying, Paul can hold a thought longer than any other writer I've ever read in my life, and the discipline of my whole life has been trying to hold a thought as long as Paul holds a thought. This thought goes back to 3.15, and even earlier. Let me use an example from human everyday human affairs. A man writes his last will and testament and it goes to a designated son, but the son doesn't receive it until the fullness of time, until he reaches in the Roman era it was fourteen years of age, in some other eras it was twenty one. Doesn't matter, it's it's a time set by the Father, which is interesting when you get to four four because in the fullness of the time God sent forth his son born of a woman, but that's, that's all uh, almost impossible to stay with it unless the Holy Spirit does it for you. But what I'm saying is that the whole time that the heir is a minor, he's no different from a slave, even though in prospect, he is the Lord of all, he's the Lord of the whole estate. He's eight years old. He doesn't know what it means, or he's four, or he's two, or he's three, or he's an infant. He doesn't know. He's the Lord of the whole estate. He doesn't know that. And he's confined until the day when the father sees fit to make him the actual Lord of the estate. In this, I say this when I see this phrase, he is Lord of all. I see an oblique but potent reference to the lordship of Jesus Christ and Paul subtly saying he, Jesus Christ, is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, then he's Lord of the living and of the dead. He is the Lord of what we would call the living believing and the living Unbelieving, He is the Lord of the unbelieving dead or the people that were disobedient all their lives and died. Those are the ones to whom he went to preach the good news. That though they died according to the flesh, they will be made alive according to the spirit. When? In bodily resurrection. If you don't wake up in this body, you'll have Christ shine on you when you wake up from your dead body because the final judgment in one sense already occurred the spirit when he comes he will persuade the world of judgment well that means he's gonna tell the whole world that there's a final judgment. no he persuades the world of judgment Because the prince of this world has been judged. Now, what if that word judgment means acquittal? What if the prince of this world is actually acquitted? Then the whole world is acquitted. How? Because now is the judgment of this whole world. And if I'm lifted up, I will draw all judgment to myself, including the judgment of the prince of this world. See where that's going? See why I got to be careful? See why I can't just do what someone told me to do? Just say everybody's going to get saved, then drop the mic. Well, first of all, the first guy that dropped the mic as a dramatic thing had something. Everybody after that was an imitator. It's a stupid trick. Plus, it wastes money, breaks microphones. So I have to teach in a way that we engage the text and find out from an engagement with the scriptural text that these things are true, that Paul is presenting to our the eyes of our heart a Christ who has universally saving significance. Does he? I can say that, or I can say it through engaging the text. What I'm saying, Paul said, is that the whole time that the heir is a minor... You know, he's talking about the air here, arguably the whole human race, the whole human race at once went under, it was going to be the heir of all things in Christ, but until Christ came, it was in its minority. When Christ came, the whole human race entered into its majority. Now, I know that's difficult to bear right now. And I have many things to say to you, and many of them you can't bear yet. And one of those I just dropped on you. And you can't bear it yet, can you? You can't quite bear it yet, can you? That's okay. We're going to do a lot of push-ups between now and the next time I mention it, and you'll be able to bear it then. So I think Paul is figuratively describing an heir over an entire estate. But he's also gesturing toward Jesus Christ whom he is proclaiming already as Lord of all and every tongue will eventually acknowledge Yeshua to be Lord or the Lord to be Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will willingly genuflect while that's going on whether knees that were under the earth Above the earth, on the earth. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Now, the reason I think Paul is saying in a backhanded way that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, there's two reasons for this. One, Paul has a radical Christocentricity. Paul is radically Christocentric. People that talk about Christocentric don't even know anything about what Christocentric means as Paul means it. There's a radical Christocentricity that people who proclaim Christ's Christocentric doctrine have no idea. They they don't even have the remotest conception of what it means to be Christocentric. Paul was radically Christocentric. So when he said he is Lord of all, he's referring to Jesus Christ. The second reason for this is Galatians 4 7, the singular son. He's going to get even more radical now and say, You, plural, are a son or the son. You, plural, you graced out pagans, are the seed. You are Christ corporate. Now he's going to say, in, all the way in 4 7, which I'm not going to do tonight, he says, You, plural, are the son or a son. Singular. Now this is going somewhere there's a punchline yet to be delivered not tonight but this is going to hover until it does come to you soon the distinctive blend of plural with singular as Paul uses it here in the sense that it's used in Deutero Isaiah or Daniel 7 with the son of man and the servant of Yahweh highlights the identification of the Galatians with the Son, the heir of all things. Our spiritual life consists of reigning in life by the one man, Jesus Christ. And you're either reigning in life by the one man, Jesus Christ, or you're not. If you're just developing character, you're not reigning in Christ. People under the power of sin develop their character. So that they have more humanly good character than other people that don't develop their human character. And so we have Adam the good guy versus Adam the bad guy. But Adam is all in Adam all die. Christian life is not character development. It's freedom from the power of sin. It's transformation by the renewing of the mind. It is God in you both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. So we'll close with this. Paul is not dealing here with salvation history. But with the entirety of humanity as a single monolith. Without reference to generations following one another. He sees all of humanity going through a phase of minority. Minority. And then into a phase of majority. And the majority phase came with Christ. When faithfulness came. When Christ came. Because it's all going to come crashing in at 4-4. When the fullness of time came. Designated by the father. God sent his son. Born of a woman. Born of. Under the law, meaning he experienced all of the enslaving condition of mankind under Torah, which had been hijacked by sin. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law to redeem us. I will show you and prove that us means the entire conglomerate of all of humanity taken all at once the horizon of God all have turned aside all together and at one time says Romans three twelve. all die in Adam all are made alive in Christ if one died for all then all died he became a curse for every man because the scripture says cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree so Paul isn't dealing here with salvation history but with the entirety of humanity as a single monolith. First, under the law with its confinement and curse. And second, under grace as beneficiaries of the faithfulness of Jesus demonstrated in the Christ event with its seven elements. Which is, we'll hit it again and again. But you know what I would say to an unsaved person who doesn't believe in Christ or who rejects God or who prides himself in being an agnostic, which is really kind of a paradox. Or a a oxymoron. Because someone who prides themselves. As being an agnostic is someone who's proud of their ignorance. You know what I'd say to them? I would say. Wake up from sleep and Christ will shine on you and you'll find out who you really are. I wouldn't say you've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner you've got to come down the aisle you've got to put your lucky strikes and your Jack Daniels on the aisle on the altar in front of everybody you've got to do it in front of everybody now because Jesus always called his disciples publicly bull now what are the seven elements of the Christ event by which we are beneficiaries of Christ's faithfulness? One, incarnation. John 1.14, Galatians 4.4. 4. Two, the life and vicarious obedience of Jesus throughout the days of his flesh, 30 plus years. John 5.19, 5.30, 8.28, Romans 5.19. By one man's obedience, all. All. we made righteous, we could say, Romans 5.19. That life, the third element of the Christ event, is the culmination of that obedience in death by crucifixion, Philippians 2.8, followed by burial, John 19.41-42. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, Colossians 2, 12, which we participate in. In every one of these elements, we participate in them by being in Christ. The fifth element begins the upward trajectory, resurrection. John 20, 20, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, Colossians 3, 1, our participation. You were raised together with Christ. Elevation or ascension which in Ephesians 4, 8, 9, he says he ascended, taking captivity captive. Captivity isn't just a group of people in some compartment of hell. Captivity is all of humanity, which was under the power of sin. He takes captivity captive with him, because it says he descended, he took the downward trajectory And the upward trajectory so that he could fill up everything with himself. All things with himself. Constituting all things so that they are comprised of Christ. So his very ascension was a declaration. That he's filling everything up with himself. It says, and he takes this from Psalm 68, which I'm going to hit pretty soon. It says, especially the rebels... Especially the rebels. He glories in saving the rebels because God just loves to justify the ungodly. And he loves the reaction of legalists when you tell them that. Because they're the worst rebels of all. Elevation or ascension, Ephesians 4, 8, 9, for example, by which the... By which completed action he fills all things up with himself. Then seventh is enthronement. That's the whole goal of Revelation. The enthroned lamb. The lamb becomes the lamp of the entire New Jerusalem, which shines its rays into all the universe. The sevenfold Christ event is salvific or saving in all of its features and all And it's coetaneous with the coming of faithfulness in Galatians 3.23. All tonight was is another increment, another segment in the exegesis of this passage in which we are painting, not with human paints or with oils or with water colors, but with the spirit of the living God. Painting a portrait of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Because this is the vision without which people are perishing. And you know what they do when they're perishing? They try to develop their character in Adam. Think of that. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And as has been the case lately, Wednesdays and Thursdays is sort of an academic exercise of concentration. But we thank you that you've brought us through these verses with a view. We're chopping through the foliage, as it were, to come to a clearing in which we see the vision of the resurrected, ascended, enthroned Lamb.